0: Father God, you are building your church. You are building your church through your word, by your spirit. You are building your church into a temple that glorifies you. Lord, we pray that we as a church would look more and more like Christ. So, Lord, work in us now by Your Spirit. Cut us to the heart through Your Word. Guide us by Your Spirit. Illumine the Word for us now so that we might be changed and to write into true worshipers of You in Christ by Your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a good artist chooses the right material. A good artist chooses the right material for the right project. The right material will allow him to show off his abilities. It's a good thing that Michelangelo's David is made out of marble. It was the right material to show off his skill, and the result is beautiful. A cook will choose the right ingredients to create just the dish that she was going for. If you do the majority of the cooking in your house, you probably think pretty carefully about what you're going to buy at HEB before you go. You just have to have chicken for chicken soup. You need ground beef for a good burger. A worker will get the right lumber, the right nails, the right tools to match whatever project he's working on. It's good that your house is built out of wood and not out of straw. What material does God use to build up His church? What material does God use to build up His church? That's what we're seeing God do here in the book of Acts. He's building up His church, and we're getting to see just how He does it. He's laid the foundation in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, And now in Acts, we're seeing him start to build up the actual structure. The church is founded on the righteous life and atoning death of Christ, which as we saw Nathan teach from Acts chapter 1, is carefully, faithfully, and truthfully taught by the apostles. So the church is founded on the righteous life and atoning death of Christ. It's the solid layer that God's laid down. Through that layer our sins are removed, and we're given life in him. But Jesus has promised that he would build his church, his assembly, his gathering, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So having laid the foundation, how will he go about building the structure? Well, again, that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. The risen and ascended Jesus begins building by sending the Holy Spirit, Look back, turn back maybe a page or so in your Bible to chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. He tells the apostles to wait for his Holy Spirit. He says that he, that is the Holy Spirit, will give you power to build the church, to bear witness to Jesus, the foundation. And Jesus, the faithful one, comes through on his promise. So next in Acts, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, The Spirit descends in a visible and audible way. The tongues of fire and rushing wind are poured out, and it's loud enough to draw a crowd, a group who's in Jerusalem from all over the world for this festival. Mm -hmm. Jews who've been scattered all over are coming to hear the apostles begin speaking in tongues, and many of them are confused about what's going on. Some think they're drunk, Some ask what this means, and so Peter stands up and tells them, and that's what we've been going through the last three weeks is Peter's sermon. He explains to the crowd what's going on, and he does so by preaching a sermon using three Old Testament texts, Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110, to tell the people that what they're seeing is the beginning of the last days this miraculous outpouring of the Spirit is exactly what God promised he would do after the Messiah was raised to life. So Peter's telling this crowd, some of whom were there at Jesus' crucifixion, he's telling them, this is the promised Holy Spirit poured out by the promised Messiah who you just crucified. Look at 2.36. Look at chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's telling the people, whether they were physically there or not, you're guilty of killing the Lord. You're guilty of regicide. Homicide is the killing of another person, patricide would be the killing of your father, regicide is the killing of the king. And that's exactly what the Jews have done. They've killed the king, their anointed one, the Lord. And that makes them rebels, treasonous rebels, sinners through and through. But that's the very material God chooses to begin building His church. God chooses the very people who killed the Christ to begin building on the foundation he's already laid. Friends, isn't that amazing? God, in his wisdom, chooses to begin building his church in which he will dwell gloriously forever with the worst that he can find. What a merciful, powerful God we have. This is foolishness in the eyes of the world. To the world, this is like a builder trying to build a house out of styrofoam or a cook trying to build a dish with the main ingredient of sawdust. But this is just the right material to show the wisdom, power, and mercy that we've sung about this morning of God. Jesus says he came not to save the righteous but sinners. And Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chooses sinners as the material to build His church. But we see in our passage this morning that it's a certain kind of sinner that makes up the church. It's a certain kind of sinner that makes up the church. We see that it's sinners who have been cut to the heart, sinners who have repented and been baptized, and sinners gifted with the Holy Spirit. Sinners who have been cut to the heart, sinners who have repented and been baptized, and sinners gifted with the Holy Spirit. Another word for each of these is Christians. These three distinct but related truths are true about Christians, all Christians. There's not a kind of Christian that's been cut to the heart but doesn't have the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a repentant Christian who's never been cut to the heart. And there shouldn't be a Christian who has the Spirit but hasn't been baptized. The raw material God uses to build His church are Christians. Sinners who have been cut to the heart, sinners who have repented and been baptized, and sinners gifted with the Holy Spirit. So look with me first at verse 37. Look down at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. God begins building His church by pouring out His Spirit, which empowers Peter to preach the Word. And what effect does Peter's preaching have on many in the crowd? It cuts them to the heart. God starts to build His church by using a tool to cut stones, the individual bricks. His tool is His Word, and the stones are the people in the crowd. God's Word is His favorite tool. It's what he always uses to work in the world, to work in the church, to work in the lives of his people. It's well-worn, but it's not dull. It's been used since the beginning of creation, but it's not getting rusty. God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of both joint and marrow, soul and spirit, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says. It comes from God's mouth and it works. It cuts. It divides. It pierces to the heart. It works as it reveals truth. Truth about who God is and who we are. The truth it reveals can sometimes hurt. And the more it reveals, the more it exposes our hearts, the sharper the pain can be. It can cut us to the heart. That's what it means to be cut to the heart. The Word of God comes in through our eyes or ears, through our mind, our understanding, and presses down and strikes at our hearts. And that's God's target our heart. That's what God pierces with His Word, it's what He shapes. Well, what is the heart? Kids, I wonder what you hear when you hear about the heart. Well, the heart, according to the Bible, isn't just a muscle that pumps blood around our bodies, and it's not just where our emotions are stored. It includes your emotions, but it's not just your emotions. According to the Bible, it's the center of a person. It's, It's who you are. It's who you really are. It's the fountain from which all of you flows, We're heart creatures. God made us intelligent, emotional, relational creatures. God has made us, in His image, as intelligent, emotional, and relational creatures. We're made for fellowship. We aren't computers. We don't simply deal with data. We don't get inputs and coldly produce outputs. We're not irrational animals who just react emotionally by instinct. We're smart, learning, feeling, loving, and acting creatures made for fellowship. We're creatures of the heart, and God wants our hearts. He wants our whole selves. The greatest commandment, the greatest law in the Bible, the great thing that we were made for, the thing that we should be aiming our whole lives at, is summarized in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord Your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Your heart is what God cares about. God tells Samuel that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus repeatedly teaches that our hearts are who we really are. The pure in heart are the blessed ones in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew 12, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we say is just a reflection of who we are in our hearts. In Matthew 15, he says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Ah, now Jesus is beginning to teach us that there's something very wrong with our hearts. The heart, being the center of the person, is the source of the bad things that we see bubble out of us regularly. That means the bad that we do, what the Bible calls sin, the bad that we do reveals something about us, reveals something about our hearts, who we really are at our core. Our sin isn't just something we accidentally do. Our sin isn't something we've Learned or picked up from our environment like an accent. No, our, our sin reveals that at our core we are sinners. We're wicked. The first mention of the heart in the Bible actually is in Genesis 6 before the flood, and the same phrase is used right after the flood. God looks down on earth, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. As humans, we're born with sinful hearts. As Scott read earlier, we're brought forth in iniquity. So when we read in Acts that Peter accuses the crowd of killing Jesus, their king, when he accuses them of cosmic treason, when he convinces them that they're rebels who just killed their king, when we see Peter talking to the crowd like this, we should actually place ourselves among the crowd. By nature, we're on the side of the killers, not on the side of the innocent Son of God. On which side do you see yourself? Apart from the grace of God, do you see yourself as one among the crowd who consented to Jesus' death? Do you see that your sinful heart condemns you? Do you see that even you have committed cosmic treason against your kind and loving Lord? Or do you flatter yourself like Peter, the man who's preaching now, who Jesus told, you, told them that he would deny him three times? So Jesus told Peter, you will deny me three times. Peter says, I'll never do that, Lord. Peter thought so highly of himself that he never imagined he would deny Jesus. But when the time came, Peter flat out lies. says he has nothing to do with that man being accused. What does Peter do when he realizes this? Luke tells us that as soon as he realized what he'd done, he wept bitterly. This wasn't a single tear rolling down his face. Peter wept bitterly. He was broken. He was cut to the heart. This same realization that they aren't on God's side but have just killed the Son of God makes the crowd feel so guilty that they are cut to the heart. I wonder if this is your reaction when you see your sin. Do you weep over your sin? When was the last time you actually shed a tear over your sin? Are you cut to the heart? When your sin is revealed to you, when God's word clearly shows that you've sinned, when a friend here at Millwood speaks the truth in love, when a preacher points something out, when the Spirit works in your personal Bible reading and you realize, I've been sinning, are you hurt? Does it grieve you? Does it pain you to find out that you've been living in a way that offends your holy and loving God? Friends, let God's Word work in your heart this way. Let God's Word pierce your heart. Let God's Word make you uncomfortable, sad, and even upset. The psalmist describes the wicked as having hearts unfeeling, like fat. Imagine layer after layer of fat building up around your heart so that you can no longer feel. You can poke and prod, but the nerve endings never even reach the surface. So you no longer feel the conviction and the pain of guilt, of sorrow, but you no longer love, you no longer care, A hard, unfeeling heart is no heart worth having. It's no life worth living. So let God's word do its work and hack away at the fatty buildup around our hearts. A Christian's heart has been pierced by the realization that he's sinned against God. His mind agrees with the verdict and unlike a computer, he's broken by guilt. It's that kind of person A broken-hearted sinner, that's good material to work with. That's the raw material God will use to build up His church. Psalm 147 says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the broken-hearted and binds up their wounds. But it's not just people who are sorry for their sins. It's not just people who feel bad about what they've done. Specifically, it's sinners who repent and are baptized that God uses, that God builds his church with. It's specifically sinners who repent, broken-hearted sinners who repent and are baptized. That's the material that God will use. Look down at the end of verse 37 and the beginning of verse 38. After agreeing with Peter, after realizing that they've killed their Lord, that they're guilty, they cry out, Brother, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. First, notice the mercy in this call to repent. It would be just for God to condemn them on the spot. But after Peter's merciful work, his merciful labor of showing them from the Scripture what God is doing and what they've done, God, through Peter, mercifully offers them a chance to repent and be baptized. But now a question has to be asked of this text. Why does Peter say these two? Why does he say repent and be baptized? Why repentance and baptism? Other than calling for their attention in this sermon so far, he's calling out, here, listen, hey, let me get your attention. Other than saying that, This is Peter's first call to action. It's his first command. It's his first application so far in the sermon. So why does he, inspired by the Holy Spirit, choose to summon them to repentance and baptism? Is he disagreeing with Jesus, who calls people to repent and believe in Mark 1.15? Is he contradicting Paul, who later in Acts answers the same question, what shall I do? By saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Does Peter's command, repent and be baptized, mean that Martin Luther, that great reformer, was wrong when he said we're saved by faith alone? I think not. I don't think there's any disagreement. Both Peter, Paul, whoever else we see preaching the gospel through the New Testament are all in general agreement. They all agree on what it means to be saved, on how people are saved, and what conversion looks like. I think Peter chooses these two aspects of conversion, repentance and baptism, because they're most appropriate for the situation. Peter chooses these two because they're most appropriate for this situation, for this audience. Peter knows what they need to hear, and he doesn't hold back from telling them. When God saves someone, there's a number of things going on, all at once. The Bible talks about salvation and conversion using terms like adoption, reconciliation, being made new, repenting, saving, turning, believing, being forgiven, being born again, regeneration, delivered out of darkness, healed, baptized, raised to life, and many, many more. All are talking about one reality. All are different facets of the beautiful diamond of the gospel. And here, among the broken, broken-hearted crowd in Jerusalem, Peter's not about to start teaching a course on salvation. He'll leave that to Paul a few de- decades later to deal with the systematic theology of soteriology. Instead, like a wise evangelist, he presses right into what's most applicable to them in their situation. And he gives them two simple things to do. He calls them to repent to turn from their sin, and he calls them to be baptized, be immersed or dipped, submerged in water in the name of Jesus. Turn from the very sin, the very rebellion that caused your Lord to be killed. Turn to Christ and publicly identify with him through baptism. Publicly identify with the very one you killed. Let's look at each of those two commands briefly. Repentance and baptism. First, repentance Repentance is the faithful response to a broken heart. It's the fruit of a soft heart. To repent means to turn. Repentance isn't a one-time action, a short-term reaction to a guilty feeling. Repentance is an ongoing action. Repentance isn't looking the other direction. It's turning and going the other direction. If I wanted to drive to Minnesota, and I get in my car, I start driving, I start seeing the weather getting warmer, signs start showing up in Spanish, and I see a sign that says, Welcome to Mexico. Repentance would be stopping, turning around, and driving the other way. So Peter calls the crowd to repent to stop traveling down the road of sinful rebellion, turn around and run to Christ. Your pierced heart is a good sign, but there's a difference between sorrow and repentance. A life of repentance is a lifetime of turning from sin. Temporarily feeling guilty, feeling brokenhearted, isn't repentance. It's part of it, but it's not all of it second corinthians 7 10 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death paul saying there are two different kinds of grief of sorrow of brokenheartedness godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death all repentance includes grief not all grief is repentance So Peter, lovingly and mercifully, doesn't let them rest assured in their sorrow. He doesn't see their grief and tell them, oh, oh, you feel bad? That's great, you're okay. He doesn't leave them there. He says your broken hearts are not enough. They need to be mended. He tells them they must repent. There are some in the crowd, I'm sure, who feel guilty. They feel bad for what they've done but they won't repent. Only time will tell. Right now, Paige just planted an herb garden in our backyard. We're starting to see some sprouts, but only time will tell whether these little green sprouts are weeds or parsley. Only time will tell whether they'll just sprout up and survive for a little bit, but prove unfruitful, or whether they'll grow and bear fruit or leaves if they're herbs. It's really exciting to see sprouts. It's encouraging. When I first saw some sprouts the other day, Paige was in the nursery, and I ran to tell her, Paige, your time is coming up. (laughs) Uh, That was a bad herb to pick. (laughs) Your T-H-Y-M-E is coming up. It was a joyful, exciting thing, but real joy comes when you begin to see fruit. Real joy will come in a few months when I get to eat a taco with homegrown cilantro on it. Likewise, being pierced to the heart is a good first sign, but it has to lead to something greater. It must lead to repentance. If you feel guilty about sin, if God's spirit through God's Word, is pricking your heart this morning. Turn from your sin. Don't carry on in rebellion. Don't keep going back to what makes your heart ache. Turn and be forgiven. If that describes you this morning, know that you will be tempted to quit reading God's Word, to quit coming to church, to quit confessing sin, Because those things are painful. It feels easier, it feels better in the moment to hide your sin, to stop reading the Word, and to hide from others. You can hide from others either by avoiding them altogether or avoiding being honest with them. Don't give in to that temptation. Don't let the temporary pain of conviction keep you from coming to the light. Pray to God for repentance, for real repentance. Repentance. Press on in reading your Bible. Find a brother or sister here at Millwood. Confess your sin and pray with them. Ask him or her to pray with you and to pray for you when you're apart. Pray for repentance. Pray for sustained, increasing, turning from sin. Pray for humble, remorseful, gracious, gradual growth in holiness. Repent, Peter tells the crowd, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is the immersion of a believer in water. Baptism is the immersion of a believer in water. It's an initiating sign. It's a first step of repentance. And it's a publicly turning to Christ. Repentance is a lifetime thing. Baptism is a one-time thing. Peter's telling the crowd exactly what Jesus taught him. In the Great Commission, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So baptism is given by Jesus. It's a direct command from Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus himself. Baptism, then, is a matter of obedience to a direct command from Jesus, our Lord. Baptism is a matter of obedience to Jesus. We learn three things about baptism from this text look down at this verse 37 and 38 we see that baptism is personal every one of you peter says it's personal baptism is done in jesus name and baptism is for the forgiveness of sins it's personal it's done in jesus name and it's for the forgiveness of sins every one of you peter tells the crowd peter says that each and every individual one of you need to be baptized the christian faith is a personal thing Just because the person next to you was baptized, that doesn't do anything for you. The faith of your neighbor doesn't do anything for your heart. The faith of your parents doesn't tell me anything about your faith. Your family's membership at Millwood or any other church tells me nothing about your individual salvation. The Christian faith is a personal thing. But it's not a private thing. Christian faith is a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. Baptism is a public event. It's a public declaration, a visible sign that lets others see something about you. So when Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, he's telling them to publicly identify with Jesus and his teaching. Baptism was given by Jesus, as we just saw, but it didn't start with Jesus. We read earlier this morning that John was baptizing before him. And other Jews were baptizing before John. But to go be baptized by someone like John was to go and say, I agree with John and his teaching. I agree that I need to be cleansed. I agree I need to repent. And I'll publicly wash so that all can see that I agree with what John is saying about me and myself. The same is true for baptism in the name of Jesus. Think about how appropriate this command is for this crowd. How appropriate that this crowd, who Peter says is guilty of killing Christ, to repent and publicly identify with Christ. Those guilty of public treason need to show public allegiance how inappropriate and incomplete would it be if, say, I publicly slandered, if I told a lie to this whole church about Marilyn, and then I went up to her privately later today, and I said, so no one could see, Marilyn, I'm sorry, I I really shouldn't have said that. I would need to set things right by coming back in front of the congregation and telling the truth and repenting publicly. My repentance should be as public as my sin. My sin. And so it's appropriate that Peter calls this crowd now to be publicly baptized. Why this crowd? Well, in Matthew 27, at the trial of Jesus, Pilate, who's the governor, took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Peter's mercifully offering this crowd the chance to wash that blood from themselves through baptism. Not as a removal of dirt or blood from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, as Peter will later write in 1 Peter 3. God is building his church in the book of Acts. And this church begins with an act of mercy. It begins by extending the offer of forgiveness of sins to the very people who called for Jesus' crucifixion. And God is no less merciful today. The offer of forgiveness of sins is offered to you. It's offered to us, to we who are guilty, as guilty in our hearts as these men were with their hands. If you haven't repented, believed in Christ, and been baptized, publicly identifying yourself with the Savior, consider that Paul's, Peter's call is for you today. Salvation from sin, from rebellious hearts, from cosmic treason, is found in Christ alone. Come to Him. No brokenheartedness, no amount of feeling guilty, no amount of trying to make up for it yourselves can atone for your sin. Christ alone, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who died a very public death that he did not deserve, who bore God's wrath for sin on the cross, he alone can atone for your sin and can forgive you. Come to Him today. Find mercy. Find forgiveness. Have your sins washed clean. Have your broken heart mended, made soft, and made new. God's building His church, and the material He uses is broken-hearted sinners who've repented, trusted in Christ, and publicly identified with him through baptism. God's materials, lastly, are sinners who have been gifted the Holy Spirit. Sinners who have been gifted the Holy Spirit. How can we be sure, the crowd may be saying to Peter, how can we be sure that we who killed Christ can repent and be baptized and be forgiven? How can we be sure that rebels like us can be reconciled to God? Peter, it's nice that you are saying this, who met with the resurrected Jesus, who received reconciliation from the risen Lord face to face. Then you've now received this visible sign of the Holy Spirit. You're reconciled, Peter, and you know it. But how can we be sure How can we be sure that this merciful offer of repentance and entrance into the church through baptism is really truly for us too? Peter gives the crowd a divine promise. The Holy Spirit is a gift for you too. To you who killed Christ, to your children who might not have been there, but you condemned along with yourselves saying, let his blood be on us and our children. To anyone, to all who are far off, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, who repents and is baptized, has the promise that the Spirit is for them too. The crowd doesn't want miraculous signs. The crowd doesn't want abilities. They aren't crying out, what shall we do to receive tongues and visions and healing? They're crying out, what can we do to be reconciled to the God we've killed? What can we do to be saved? How can we have our cut hearts healed? They're not looking for miraculous gifts. They're looking for salvation. So Peter assures them that salvation is being offered to them. He assures them by promising the Holy Spirit to all, to any who repent and believe. The promise of the Spirit is there, and and it's ours. It's there in our assurance that we have reconciliation with God, that we have forgiveness, that we're in the church universal, among those who are being and will be saved. That's the promise God makes, not first here, but back in Ezekiel 36, saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The promise of the Holy Spirit is so crucial for the crowd then and for us now Because it's the Spirit who unites us to Christ. It's only through the Spirit that Christ and the forgiveness He offers, the forgiveness He accomplished on the cross, becomes ours. It's only through the Spirit that Christ and forgiveness become ours. Reconciliation to God, we see in this passage, is a Trinitarian work. Like all of God's works, it's a Trinitarian work. Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved. Look at verse 38. The Son, Jesus, makes atonement, forgiving sin. Look in verse 38 and 39. The Spirit makes us clean by uniting us to Christ and bringing us into fellowship with Him and all other believers. The Son forgives sin. The Spirit unites us to Christ, the Son, And God the Father, look at the end of verse 39, God the Father is the one who plans, predestines, and calls us. This salvation, this Trinitarian salvation, is a gift from beginning to end. From the work of Christ on the cross, to the calling of God in your life, to the gift of repentance, faith, and union with Christ, to the promise of the Holy Spirit, Salvation is a gift. And because it's a Trinitarian gift, we can have assurance. If you have part in one person, you have part in them all. If you're in Christ and you have been united to Him by faith, you can be sure that you're called by God. If the Spirit is working in you, you can be sure that you have the forgiveness of sins. Fellowship with one And the blessings and the benefits of one entail fellowship and blessing from all three. The one God works one salvation from His one will. By the Spirit, poured out by Jesus, we're brought into this fellowship with God and with one another. By the Spirit, we're made alive, living stones, Peter says in his first epistle living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, Millwood, are a house, a temple made up of living stones, material that's been cut and shaped by God through His Word, material that's been washed clean by His Spirit, And so our church should look very much like its material. Our church, we as a church as a whole, ought to look like our constituent parts. Those who are living, those who are holy, those who are in Christ, looking more and more like Christ. We as members at Millwood have actually covenanted together to make sure our church looks like this. We've taken responsibility to make sure our church looks the way that God's calling us to look in the Bible. As a church, we want this because we want assurance that the Spirit is working in us. Not miraculous signs, but by seeing His sanctifying effects in our lives individually and together as a church. We know the Spirit's working in us and has united us to Christ and has sealed us for eternity if we see Him working in us the way He's working in the church in Acts 2. If we see Him growing us in holiness, unity, in love, as we'll see in the weeks to come, the effects that the Spirit has on this newly formed and newly built church. Our church isn't trying to do anything different from what the church in Acts is called by God through Peter to do. So pray that God, by His Spirit, would continue to work in our church. Pray from this passage this week. Look down at the passage and find these words, just in verses 37 through 39. Heard, cut to the heart, repent, baptized, in the name of Christ, forgiveness, and called. Here are seven spiritual signs that we can pray as a church for our church. Pray these things for the church this week. I wonder if you can find more. Families, that might be a good activity this afternoon. Over lunch, open the Bible together. See if you can find other ways, other than these seven, that you could pray together as a church. But here are seven. First, heard. Pray that we would be a church that commits to be hearers people who listen to God's Word, who gather around it, who crave to be fed by it, who want the pure, unadulterated milk of the Word week after week, day after day. Pray that we would be hearers. Pray that we would be a church that's cut to the heart, that's sensitive to sin, that mourns over sin, both in ourselves and in others. Pray that we would be open to correction from others. And pray that we'd be a church, third, that's repentant. Not only that mourns, but turns from sin and is growing in holiness. Fourth, pray that we'd take responsibility to baptize people seriously. Pray that we would take our responsibility as a local church to baptize people. Pray that we would take that seriously. That we wouldn't be flippant and baptize people who aren't repentant nor are showing any signs of the Spirit, any fruit of the Spirit. And pray that we wouldn't withhold baptism from anyone who's a genuine believer, anyone who has the least amount of grace in them. Pray that we wouldn't withhold baptism wrongly from them. Fifth, pray that we would be a church that bears the name of Christ rightly to the world, is growing in maturity, and looking more and more like Christ, united as one body. Pray that we'd be a church that bears the name of Christ rightly. Sixth, Pray that we would know that we've been forgiven in Christ and we would be quick to forgive one another. Finally, seventh, pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Pray that we ourselves would call others, our children, our neighbors, all who are far off, that we'd preach the gospel to them, pray for their conversion, teach and love them. Pray that those who are far off would be brought near, that we would even be a diverse church reflecting the many ethnicities, nations that are here in our neighborhoods in Austin. Our triune God is building our church. He's choosing and shaping the material. He's shaping redeemed sinners like you and me into a temple filled with His glory. So pray confidently, boldly, and diligently for these things. Let's pray for these things now. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for pouring out Your Spirit who reconciles us to You through Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that looks more and more like Christ, more and more like who you are calling us to be. We pray that we would be hearers, that we would love your word, that we would hear it together, alone. Lord, we pray that we would be shaped by it, that we would be cut to the heart, sensitive to our sin. Lord, we pray that we would be repentant over that sin, that we would turn from it and grow in holiness. We pray for holiness, Lord. Make us a holy people. Lord, we pray for wisdom in our uh, responsibility you've given us to baptize. Lord, you've given the keys of your kingdom to local churches, to sinners like us. Lord, you've given spiritual wisdom to sinners like us, to wield them well. And so we pray for that now. Lord, we pray that we would bear the name of your Son rightly to the world. We are the institution that you have chosen to display your glory in Christ to the world. So we pray that we would walk in a manner worthy. We pray that we would know, first and foremost, that we have been forgiven in Christ. So make us a forgiving church. Lastly, Lord, we pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Lord, we thank you for your calling, for your calling through your word, for your effectual calling by your spirit. Lord, may we not hoard this to ourselves, but may we call others through your word, faithfully preached, proclaimed, faithfully gossiped to others who do not know, Give us a love for your glory and a love for the lost. To that end, and build your church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.